Today we continue our eight-part sermon series entitled One Another. This morning we come to the most popular one another command. We are told in Scripture repeatedly that we are to love one another. The difficulty with this command is that in our culture, love is attached to just about anything. We say that we love food and football. We love shoes and shopping. We love our cars and we love our chocolate. We love just about anything and everything. We love just about anyone and everyone. Yet in the scripture, the command for us to love one another is always hitched to God's love for us. Let me say it this way, that the call for us to value one another highly is because God has cared for us deeply. We value one another highly because God cares for us so deeply. The love that we have for others is always hitched to the love that God has for us. The scripture repeatedly tells us to love one another. The Bible does not tell us that we necessarily always have to agree with each other or share the same hobbies with one another. It doesn't say that we're supposed to root for the same teams or we're supposed to vote for the same politicians or vacation together at the same summer home. But the Bible does repeatedly tell us that we are to love one another. And sometimes that's hard, isn't it? Sometimes people just aren't very lovable. It's difficult to love everyone. It's difficult to love people the way God has loved us. But throughout the scripture, God tells us and describes for us what this kind of love looks like. So today I want us to return to one of the most familiar, straightforward passages on this topic. It's found in 1 John chapter 4. I invite you to take a Bible and turn there. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. 1 John chapter 4, I'll begin reading at verse 7, I'll conclude at verse 12. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, understanding, and the obedience to his perfect word. You may be seated. The author is the man named John. John is the one who wrote the three letters, the gospel that bears his name, and the book of Revelation. Apparently, John was writing to a community that had lost uh, the definition of love, the definition of love had become so lackluster and elastic that it pretty much described anything and anyone. I think that John is writing to a community kind of like this community. I think he's writing to some believers in that day similar to believers in this day. Because in that day, love had evolved into a word that was describing affinity towards anything. 
In a similar way, that's how we approach this word called love. We use it to describe our affinity towards anything and everything. Yet John says, let me talk to you about love. He's not talking about a sappy sentimentalism that somehow leaves your palms sweaty, your heart pounding out of its chest, and in your stomach there are somersaulting butterflies. No, he's not talking about Cupid kind of love. He's speaking of God's love. He simply says in the first line of our passage, dear friends, dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. He writes, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Let us love one another because love comes from God. God is the source and the spring out of which we love. Now, most of you realize that the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And in the Greek language, there is a word that is omitted in our English translation. When John says to the church, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Literally in the Greek it says, let us love one another for the love comes from God. He's not describing any love. He's not describing a worldly love. He's describing the love. The love that comes from God. Now, consistent in this passage and in so many like it, the word for love is agape. It is God's unconditional, unmerited. It is God's unending. It is his gushing passion for you and for me. Because of his love for us, we ought to love one another. For the love comes from God. If you and I don't understand the first sentence of verse 7 in its proper context, then we will rip the second sentence out of its proper context. For he says, for everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, if you don't understand the first sentence, that he's talking about the love that comes from God, then you can rip out the second sentence and twist it to mean something that God never intended for it to mean. You can take that sentence out and say, you know what? The scripture says everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So that must mean that if you have the capacity to love something, if you have the capacity to love someone, that's evidence that you are okay with God. And nothing could be further from the truth. Because people might think to themselves and, and misinterpret, maybe it's Joe who's sitting on the left side of the sanctuary, row 10. He thinks to himself, you know what? Listen, I love my job, I love my dog, I love fishing and I love my wife, probably in that order, but I love these things. So because I have the capacity to love, that must mean I'm okay with God. Oh, but you realize that if you misinterpret the first sentence, then you can rip the second sentence out of its context. John, as he's writing to the community of believers, he's saying, dear friends, the love comes from God. We ought to love one another because the love comes from God. And everyone who loves like that, everyone who loves like God, everyone who's received that love and reflects that love, then that's evidence that that person is born of God and knows God. Now, all you have to do is just read uh, John's writings in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John or read the gospel that bears his name or even in the book of Revelation and you'll discover that when John speaks about being born of God, he is speaking about being born again. He's talking about becoming a Christian. He's talking about placing your faith in Jesus Christ, going from no faith to faith, going from death unto life. 
And John says that the person who knows the love of God and a person who reflects the love of God, that's evidence that they are born of God and that they know God. Once again, in John's writings, to know God is to know him personally. It is to know him practically. It is to know him passionately. He's not pursuing a religion. He's pursuing a relation with God through the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. So when John writes about being born of God and knowing God, he's talking about what you and I would say, being born again and having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The evidence that you are born of God, the evidence that you know God is that you love like God. And once again, he's not talking about worldly love. He's talking about the love of God, the agape love of God. So John, just like every other writer in the sacred scripture, he never unhitches the love that we have for each other from the love that God has towards us. We are called to value one another highly because God cares for us so deeply. That the love that we have for one another is a reflection of the love that God has for us that we've received by faith. So that everyone who loves like God, everyone who has this love in their life is evidence that they've been born of God and they know God. John just simply puts all the cookies on the bottom shelf when he just says God is love. What a beautiful three-word statement. God is love. Now, you can't reverse that statement to say all love is God, because if you reverse the statement, then you'll get into some worldly difficulties, uh, like we just described earlier, how you can say, well, all love, all affinity towards anything and everything is evidence that you are of God. No, God is love. God is the source of love. He is the spring of love. Love is found and bound in him. He is the foundation of love. He is the author of love. God is love. One day, C.H. Spurgeon was walking with a friend on the countryside, and they saw a barn. On top of that barn was a weather vane. And the weather vane just simply read, God is love. The prince of preachers, C.H. Spurgeon, said, now that is misplaced. Because a weather vane is always changing, but God's love is constant. His friend looked at him and said, Charles, I think you're misreading the sign. I think what the sign is telling us is that regardless of which way the wind blows, God is love. We understand that, don't we? That regardless of what comes down the pike, regardless of what's around the next turn, regardless of how the wind blows in your life, regardless of circumstance and situation, regardless of prognosis or predicament, regardless of what you're experiencing, the solid foundation of your life is the reality that God is love. He doesn't change like shifting shadows. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And his love, his unconditional, unmerited love, his unending agape love, it is consistent in your life. So regardless of how the winds of change blow in your life, God is love. Now, I've been told what you've been told, that there are more than a few Christians who mistakenly understand that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. And friends, there's a theological word for that and that's simply baloney. I mean, there's no truth to that because the Bible says of God that he does not change. He is the same 
yesterday, today, and forevermore. So God's love cannot be absent of wrath. And God's love cannot be absent of truth. And God's love cannot be absent of doctrine. I've heard well-meaning pastors, I've heard well-intended Christians who will say, you know what, we, we don't really talk that much about doctrine because we just choose to love each other. And friend, you want a God who will tell you who he is and who you are and what you ought to believe. You don't want a God who changes with the wind. You don't want a God who will keep from you his truth and his teaching and his doctrine. You don't want a God who, according to some people, would say, you know what, that's your truth, here's my truth. Who are we to tell what truth is the real truth? We're just going to choose to love each other. A loving God will tell you the truth. A loving God will tell you what is right and what is wrong. A loving God will tell you what is up and what is down. And a loving God will not shift the definitions regardless of the century in which we live. It is God who is the truth and will communicate the truth. And you don't want a God who doesn't tell you the truth. And you don't want a God who isn't wrathful. You really don't want a God who just sweeps sin under the carpet. Because if he just sweeps sin under the carpet, it's evidence that he's not as holy as he pretends to be. But I'm here this morning to tell you that God is holy. And because of his holy passion for you and for me, when he sees your sin and my sin, for all of us have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God, when he sees our sin, there is righteous wrath that rises up inside of him. There is holy hostility that he has towards your disobedience in mind. We don't want a God who's wishy-washy. We don't want a God who just sweeps sin under the carpet. We want a God who on the backside of his passion is his wrath. We want a God who is wrathful towards injustice. We want a God who will tell us the truth. We want a God who will teach us accurate doctrine. So to say that God is love It's not to diminish his holy wrath. It doesn't diminish his truth. And it does not negate his doctrine. God is love. What does this look like? Well, God described it for us. God demonstrated this love for us. For we are told that this one who who is love, that before We knew him, he knew us. Before we loved him, he loved us. It's not that one day you just woke up and said, you know what, I think I'm going to love God. I just think I'm going to love God. And I really hope that he's going to love me in return. And so you wrote a letter to God like you're in fourth grade and said, God, I love you. Do you love me? Please check which box, yes or no. No, God says, listen, before you ever Before you ever loved me, I loved you. Before you were ever pursuing me, I was pursuing you. Before you were ever chasing after me, I was chasing after you. Because God, in his passion and his holiness, he has pursued us. And he says, let me demonstrate the love, the extent of my love. We are told that he sent his one and only son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He sent his one and only son. That phrase, one and only son, 
is the same phrase that's used in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And here in 1 John chapter 4, he uses the same phrase to remind the early Christians, listen, your love for each other is always hitched to God's love for you. Don't forget that God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son. He sent his one and only son to demonstrate the love of God. And it's through the sending of his son into the world to be um, an atoning sacrifice for your sins that you can be born again and you can know God. Oh, when John writes that God sent Jesus, not just to send him into the world, but sent him to save us, he uses the phrase that Jesus came as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The ancient word, is propitiation. I know it sounds like a big churchy word, doesn't it? And it is. But the word propitiation means that Jesus satisfied the righteous wrath of God for your sins and mine. That literally, by the actions of Jesus on the cross, he absorbed God's holy hostility. He drank the very last drop of God's righteous wrath. He shielded us from the holy, righteous anger of God. And by the actions of Jesus, God was satisfied. If you visualize it like this, that, that on the cross, all of God's righteous wrath for your sin was being poured out. And Jesus hung on the cross, shielding you from it. It hit him so it would not hit you. He absorbed it all so that you would not have any left over. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin and left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. We sing that song. It's great song. It's tremendous theology. And Jesus paid it all. There's nothing left over for you to pay. There's no tip that you have to offer. There's no exchange that you have to purchase. There, there's nothing that you have to do because Jesus shielded you from the righteous wrath of God. And Jesus absorbed all the holy hostility that literally should be meted out against me for all of eternity and should be meted out against you for all of eternity. Jesus is the propitiation of our sins, which means he satisfied the righteous wrath of God. Sometimes we describe it this way. That Jesus paid a sin debt he didn't owe. Because you and I have a sin debt that we cannot pay. He is our propitiation. He demonstrated in a satisfactory way to appease the holy wrath of God against your sins and mine. Let me simply state it this way. I think that you and I would agree that we live in a broken world. We are broken people living in a broken world, everybody is completely broken. Everybody is shattered. The world is broken and shattered, and we try to get out of that brokenness. Oh, we use various things like success or, or money or popularity or relationships, a host of different types of addiction. And all the time, we are in an effort trying to get out of that brokenness, but like a boomerang, it brings us right back to a shattered, broken world. And God didn't 
originally make it that way. No, when God made the world, it was perfect. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, they ran from that perfection. They wanted to be their own God. They were like you. They were like me. They ran in disobedience. We call that sin. And the end result of sin is utter brokenness. And God could have left us in that state of shambles. But because of his love for us, he didn't. He provided the way, the only way, for the broken people to be made whole again. He sent Jesus. Jesus is the God-man, fully God and fully human. And Jesus stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. He was born in a Bethlehem stable some 2,000 years ago. He lived a perfect life. That's right. He never did anything wrong. He never said a dirty word. He never had a bad attitude. He never did a dirty deed. He never did anything wrong. He is the only person to ever walk this sod in perfection. And about the age of 33, Jesus, who was a religious rabbi, he was handed over to the religious rulers of his day. And the Jewish people then turned him over to the Romans. And they claimed that he was an insurrectionist, that he was trying to revolt against the Roman Empire. And the Roman government, they executed him. The form of execution in the first century was crucifixion. And the Romans were masters at it. They had perfected how a person could suffer and die on a wooden cross. And God chose to use that symbol of execution so that Jesus could die in our place and take our punishment. It's not that Jesus was just walking along, he tripped and fell, hit his head and he died. No, he had to die an intentional death so that he could be the propitiation of your sins and mine so that he could be the one who absorbed the righteous wrath of God. So in the third decade of the first century, on a given Friday, Jesus stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem. He had a cross strapped to his back. He went outside the city gate, went up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha, and there the Roman soldiers stretched him wide and hoisted him into the air. And for several hours... Jesus took your hell upon himself. For several hours, Jesus took my hell upon himself. For a few hours, Jesus took an eternity's worth of punishment. He took it upon himself. And, and even though God the Father turned away from God the Son, it is God the Son who is still calling the shots in a very dramatic way. It is Jesus who says at the very end to Telestai, it is finished. What's finished? Payment for your sin is finished. God is completely satisfied. And the sin debt has been paid in full. The dead body was taken off the cross, placed to a borrowed grave. And Jesus stayed there for the rest of Friday and all day Saturday, even into the early hours of Sunday. But every gospel writer tells us that early on Sunday morning, God the Father raised God the Son by the power of God the Spirit. And Jesus got up out of the grave. What he declared was finished on Friday is validated on Easter Sunday because God the Father raised God the Son by the power of the Spirit of God. And Jesus burst forth victorious over your sin, your grave, your death, your hell. Not just for you, but also for me and for all who would believe. And Jesus is victorious. And because of his victory, he now gives us the capacity to live in victory 
as we follow after him. I don't know about you, but I'm glad today that Jesus loves me. I don't know about you, but I'm glad today that he who knew no sin became my sin. I don't know about you, but I'm glad today that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't know about you, but I am glad today that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know about you, but I'm glad today that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. I said, yes, Jesus loves me because the Bible tells me so. I don't know about you, but I'm glad today that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and for yours. And though he was dead and placed in a borrowed grave, on the third day, he was raised from the dead. I don't know about you, but that makes me happy in the house today. And John says, therefore, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Don't forget, the command to love one another is always hitched to God's love for us. It's never separated. Because we have received the love of God, we've got to reflect the love of God towards others. Since God so loved us. There's no debate there. There's no denying. There's no arguing there. Since God so loved us, he demonstrated it perfectly at Calvary's cross. Since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. John is telling the church what we ought to do. He's not telling the church what we always do. Parents, you tell your children what they ought to do, but do they always do what they ought to do? The answer is no. Sometimes we don't do what we ought to do. John says, because God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And when we do so, he said in the final sacred sentence, that God's love is then made complete in us. We've never seen God, but we've seen each other. And when we love each other, his love is made complete in us. That word complete could also be translated made perfect. But whether you translate it as complete or made perfect, the idea is the goal is achieved. What is God's goal for your life? God's goal is that you may receive his love and reflect his love to others. When that happens, touchdown, when that happens, the goal has been achieved. When that happens, when you receive his love and you reflect his love, then his love is achieving what he sent for it to achieve and accomplish. Friends, I gotta tell you that here in the church, ought to be the place that the watching world can see God's love on display. I mean, here, among brothers and sisters in Christ, the way we treat each other, the way we talk to each other, the way we show love to each other, it, when the watching world looks at the church, the watching world ought to see love reflected. Because we receive the love of God, and we reflect that love of God towards others.
But every time there is a argument among Christians, it says to the watching world, and the watching world says to us, see, I told you, God's love doesn't work. Every time there is a sibling squabble, every time there is a cross word that is spoken, every time there is a Christian friendship that deteriorates and is broken, the watching world says to us, see, I told you, God's love doesn't work. Every time there's a marital fight, every time there's a Christian divorce, it says to the watching world, see, I told you, God's love doesn't work. But friends, I came this morning to tell you that God's love does work. It works in my life. It works in marriage. It works in the family. It works in the church. It works in the office. It works at the ball field. God's love works. And friends, if you are a Christian, if you are somebody who follows hard after God, and if you've received the love from God, the love of God, then you must reflect that love towards other people. You say, but pastor, you don't know all the details. You don't know how hard it is to love that person. And when I hear that, and even when I say that, I hear God say to me, do you think it's easy for me to love you? And at first I say, of course it's easy for you to love me. It's me. It's easy for you to love us. It's us. We're lovable. Right? I mean, I mean, who doesn't love me? Who doesn't love us? We're nice people. We're lovable people. How hard is it to love me? How hard is it to love y'all? And all you got to do is ask your spouse. Honey, is it easy to love me? And she's going to look at you, and she's probably going to pat you on the arm and say, yes, honey, it's easy to love you. Which really she's saying, it is hard to love you, you stinking rascal. Because it's not easy to love us. And every time I say to myself, it's hard to love him. It's hard to love her. It is God who reminds me, it is hard for me to love you too. And when we stop and consider the extent that God went to to show his love for us, his love to us. Friend, if you have received the agape love of God in your life, then you must reflect God's love to others. But pastor, that's hard. I know. Not everybody is as lovable as you. Not everybody is easy to love. But why do we think that it was easy for God to love us? We were yet sinners. And Christ died for us. If you have received love, you must reflect love towards others. I find it interesting that in the Bible, love for God and love for neighbor is never divorced. Whenever you hear the great Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is always quickly followed with the second is likened unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. It always flows in that order, by the way. Love God, then love others. It never says love others and then love God. Always loving God, and out of loving God, I am called to love others. Because the love of God and the love of others is never unhitched. 
God's love is not found in Cupid, candy, or cards. God's love is found in Christ. And if you have received the agape love of Christ, then you must reflect that love towards others. So today we hear the instruction, do we not? Where the Lord just simply tells the church, love one another. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, before we take communion, Lord, help us as we think about this lesson that you have given to us. Lord, as the praise team sings, help us to think about the great love that you have given to us, and we've received it, and help us to reflect that love towards others. Lord, prepare our hearts and our minds for the taking of the bread and the cup. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.